Hey guys, welcome back to the Phil Craft Survival Podcast. I'm your host, Mike, and today's episode, we're finishing up part two of Tactical Neuroscience. If you guys were tuning in our last episode, part one, we were talking about all the things that happen to your body, to your mind under stress. And we had our special guest, which we have on today, Justin, a doctor who specializes in neuroscience. So what's going on, Justin? Nothing much. Thanks for having me back. I appreciate it. This is like the third take of this thing. <laughs> like my brain's not working right now. <laughs> We're in San Francisco. I'm, I'm consult for Oracle and so is Justin. He's joined the consulting team and just our brains are fried because we're just thinking about a lot of stuff. We've been working a lot, but it's good and there's some exciting things that are coming out of it. And so I can't wait. We're, we're pumped to share. Hell yeah. So you were blowing my mind with something that we had talked about before, but this chemical inside your brain and describing is this chemical is, is something that, what did you say? Elevates arousal yeah. and yeah. decreases your decreases anxiety. Your anxiety. So it's this, the chemical, I need this bad. Well, every, <laughs> so it, everybody assumes that we need it. And so it, it's still very much in the, in the uh, emerging research realm, but the chemical name is neuropeptide S and it, it's this fascinating neuropeptide that's produced NPS. NPS, NPS okay. Yep. It's produced inside your brain and it's the only chemical that has been found thus far to my knowledge that again decreases your anxiety, so relaxes you, kind of mellows you out, but at the same time flips on your arousal. So it's like having the Red Bull without any of the jitters and you feel actually more relaxed. And so it's an anxious free boner is what this <laughs> Essentially. Is <laughs> no anxiety <laughs> included. Yeah. So what are the benefits to, you know, obviously arousal isn't just how I think about it, you know, in the context of boners, but arousal increases your ability to, to perform. Yeah, to perform. I mean, it, it's similar as the stress curve we talked about last episode, right, where you want to make sure you're not too aroused or you're not under aroused enough. You want to be at the peak of that curve. And so if you think of uh, arousal and stress going to be one of the same thing where if you're not stressed enough, you're not going to perform very well. And if you're overstressed, you're going to perform poorly. And so arousal at this point can kind of be synonymous with stress in some sense, in some sense. You know, something just popped in my mind about adrenaline and we didn't really talk about adrenaline because it's, is adrenaline and cortisol the same exact thing? Yeah. I hear uh, that all the time. I've messed it up all the time. Yeah. It's one of those where I, you know, some, it depends on who you talk to. The difference between cortisol and norepinephrine is cortisol is a, a hydrocortisone or glucocorticoid a steroid stress hormone. And norepinephrine is a catecholamine. They're both involved in the stress response and released from your adrenal gland. Did you say colon? <laughs> That's all I heard. Catecholamine. Yeah. You got to have a cat, a cat colon. <laughs> I've used both terms synonymous with each other, but it's, that's not wrong, right? That's they go one in, one in another. They're they're similar with each other enough to where the end result from kind of this perspective is if you're stressed, you have this massive dump coming from your adrenal gland. <laughs> both are included. I have massive dumps coming from my adrenal gland all the time, so this is not a problem for me. Uh, so, you know, when I think about all these things that we talked about, and this leads into this this episode. There's obviously some issues when you look at guys in our field, you know, besides the issue we talked about is being complacent. There's also issues that happen, I'm assuming physiologically to your system when you're used to having all this adrenaline on board, you kind of deteriorate all these, you know, parts of your system. Uh, recently, I was talking to a buddy of mine and we were talking about our blood and the amount of testosterone in our blood. 
And it's funny, but most special operations guys that, you know, are in their 30s and their 40s, they're used to having high testosterone in their 20s that they're using. So they're burning that fuel. And, you know, people associate testosterone with weakness. And it's not necessarily the case because some of the most fit guys I know could potentially have low testosterone, especially free-floating testosterone in their blood. And what we noticed is, you know, talking to docs and talking to guys in our field is a lot of us have these issues with lower testosterone than other people, comparative people in civilian industries as compared to our industry. Is there, is there a science behind that? Yeah, there definitely. So the, the whole exercise physiology and the, the testosterone component and how, you know, the hormonal regulation, your endocrine system, I mean, that's, that's a very, very deep field. And so to tie it back to what we were talking about before with how your brain works, it's the idea that, you know, these systems all feed back on each other. So it's this idea of feedback or feed forward, which kind of lead into our PTSD discussion, hopefully. But, you know, when you're producing testosterone, at some point your body says, okay, we've produced enough testosterone. It's time to turn that system off, right? And so when you get to the levels of where you're having dysregulation or PTSD type effects after a stressful event, that's your amygdala portion of your brain. And it's not being turned off. The off switch, as I mentioned earlier, is gone, right? So usually you should have your amygdala fires. This is a scary near-death experience and you should be scared for your life. But at some point that off switch, you know, your hippocampus, your uh, interior cortex, prefrontal cortex areas of your brain that help to regulate that part of the emotional limbic system, they don't work very well anymore, right? And so they can be cued so that all of a sudden you've got this incredible amygdala response going on, which is not quite appropriate after this stressful event. And it causes anxiety, panic attacks, flashbacks, all of these, you know, things that are not beneficial to you as a system because the your brain is not able to turn the amygdala off. Oh man, that's, that's fascinating. So it's, I mean, oh, so that's like, you know, I, I call it an institutional problem because, you know, institutionally, when you belong to any institution and you're doing work and then you transition into another field of work, you know, becoming a 20 year military guy and now you're becoming a civilian trying to get used to that civilian life. It's hard for you to transition period because anybody who does the same patterns or irregular patterns that have to now do a pattern are going to have these issues, especially when it comes um, to their, their system, their physical and mental system. And you have to learn to retrain, retrain your brain, retrain your body, retrain your physiology to exist in the civilian world versus existing in the military world where you wanted to be in that heightened state of arousal before, during, and just after the mission to make sure everything was successful. Whereas in our civilian lives, again, as we mentioned earlier, you know, that's very rare. Maybe somebody's going to have a near-death experience a handful of times in life, and it's a major life event. Whereas individuals that are coming out of a really high operation tempo and transitioning into civilian life, that those peaks and valleys are no longer there. It's kind of much more right along that baseline. And, you know, the, the most exciting thing of a day could be the kid's soccer game, right? Yeah. And when your, your system is used to ramping up and getting peaked out and then coming back down to baseline and relaxing and taking that nap before you go back on the next stop, that's a very different way to run to run your body and to run your brain, whereas learning how to train it so that these smaller fluctuations are the new normal can be really hard. You hit it right on the head. We've never even had this conversation, but when I think about PTSD, like if, if you ask my ex, it'd probably be something different completely, but I always tell everybody this. I don't have PTSD in the traditional sense that veteran affairs, that most 
doctors will tell you that how PTSD affects you, meaning they don't, I don't have flashbacks. I don't have bad dreams. You know, if I have bad dreams, it's, it's about not being there for teammates. If I have uh, stressors, it's typically related, like you said, to a short fuse because I'm used to reacting in a different way. I don't have flashbacks in the sense that I look at things and go, oh, that reminds me of war because war is so traumatic. For me, war was not traumatic. I never had traumatic experiences, even in the most intense moments in special operations and warfare, where it jarred me and I went, that was a negative experience. Even when I've seen the worst, you know, American casualties, foreign casualties, it didn't have that kind of impact. And people will tell you, I fought with doctors about this. They're like, well, you you don't see long-term the effects. And I get that. But I understand also that residual thoughts, period, will develop and manifest themselves in different ways. Well, for me, I don't think it negatively or adversely affected me long-term. So it's not like 15 years from now, I'm going to start crying because maybe I had a bad experience with, with war or this accumulation of this war. I have more what I call transitional issues where, for example, a guy cuts me off in traffic. Dude, I am not used to rolling out in a single plane. I don't tolerate disrespect. And so that's that was a tradition or value I had as a child and as a young adult, went to the military. Now I'm even, it's like 10 times what it was then. And when I was in the military, burning off that extra fuel, that extra rage, now I become a civilian and somebody cuts me off and I just go off the handle. So I, I get that, man. I, I get the transitional issues. But, I, you know, is there a difference between PTSD as defined for guys in my field, like special operations versus PTSD, where people have like the fear of the unknown. I mean, are those two different? Things? Yeah. So, so this is the part where I want to make sure I put the giant asterisk, right? So my degree, my PhD is in research and this is the public service announcement, right? If you're having these type of issues or you, you need to make sure you seek professional help and supporting that idea, I think is where mental health care is coming along, but we're not quite there yet. You could absolutely have a broken brain. And to get your brain fixed takes professional help. So if you need that professional help, make sure you seek it out. Uh, what we're kind of talking about today is much more on the, the basic research, fundamental applied. It's, you know, it's, this is not cognitive behavioral therapy. This is kind of the science that will then drive cognitive behavioral therapy in 20 years. Just Why like, are you making me sign this waiver right now? <laughs> I just want to put that comment in there. Because <laughs> this, is, this is a very, very serious issue. And I think it's something that we're, as a society, we're, we're just now figuring out that we have enough science to back to know mental health is real. It's not just somebody's a weak mind, you know, in World War II and other the, the conflicts, the battle fatigue, all these different kinds of things to call it. But what we're showing now through research is PTSD, battle fatigue, all these different names are essentially an, a broken system that can't regulate your amygdala fear response for certain situations. So your question, to get back to your question was, are those, is it the same from combat experiences to say individual and civilian life who was through a traumatic car accident? Physiologically similar to the contextual situation, they're very, very similar. There might be certain parts of the brains which perhaps have not been identified yet that uh, kind of help to control or modulate the differences between there. But where we are with mental health is we have a long way to go and we have a lot more research to do, but it's learning how to understand that these systems are all interwoven with each other and they all work together to influence 
your output and how you perform and behave as a individual. I think that's a it's very safe safe analysis of it too because it seems like to me it just seems there's no definitive outlets for specific problems right because you know PTSD is it's such a broad spectrum it's just like a it's a huge finger pointing at you and it's it's just like you got PTSD and, and part of the the issues that I see are one uh, we victimize right these these people who are these soldiers who say I have PTSD not understanding that you know, somebody who puts themselves in a situation where they volunteer for it, they want to be part of the action. They high five their buddy before and after the mission. And they don't have these issues that are aligned with somebody who didn't want to be in that position, somebody who didn't volunteer, somebody who was forced to go outside of the wire and they had a fear response of the unknown. I've been asked before, hey, what do you, what do you fear? I honestly and this is not an ego thing. I honestly do not fear anything. There is there is not one fear that I have. The biggest fear I have long-term, I think, is failing my family and friends, right? Being a failure in life. And, you know, that's more philosophical. Tangibly or on the immediate surface, there is nothing that I fear because there's nothing that I sense, whether it's darkness, a suspect in the dark, a gunfight, jumping out of an airplane, where I get a fear response. And I would have to almost force my hand in that sense. So when I'm doing things like getting in a gunfight or, or going into a potential to get into a gunfight, it's almost like I've removed the carrier for that post-traumatic stress because of that situation. Is there something behind that? Yes. So the way that I think is a good way to conceptualize it is the idea that, as you mentioned, you have the ability to make the choice to put yourself into those situations. And so you chose to go to the hardest schools to do the hardest jobs. And that is a very different outcome on the back end than the individual who participates, volunteers to the military, but then doesn't have any control over the mission sets that they're going to go on. The example that I like to use is, you know, in special operations, you guys have the ability at all levels to say, you know, have input on the mission logistics in some, in some form. Uh, you're always okay to voice your opinion and say, this is not a good idea. Or I think that part of the mission is not planned very well. Let's reset that. That is very different than the individual that is told to please get, not even please, get in the truck and drive 100 kilometers that way. And you know that you have to go and make that delivery of whatever it is in the back of the truck. But you have no control over the whole IED alley that you have to run through. And based on previous experience, you know that those go off, right? So it's that perception of control, which then influences the context of the situation, which then influences how you perceive the stress that you're in. That, that makes total sense. I, it's almost like the more you're informed or the more that you have an understanding of what you're getting yourself into, the better you can get through it and be more resilient. When I was in, in processing in veteran affairs and they're analyzing, you know, my combat rotations, they immediately say, Hey, You've been to combat, so you got PTSD. It's, an, it's almost an automatic thing. You have to fight them to not get it. And I remember one of the courses that they put me through where this was an innovative like revelation for them. It was a PowerPoint class where they taught you the effects of stress. And it was this Air Force like lieutenant colonel who worked at Joint Special Operations Command. And she was giving these courses to combat controllers and to pararescue men in their training. And so, and then I, it occurred to me during this, during this class, 
that we're, we are too late. The, I mean, th- these classes are too late for the people who are getting them because this could have set the good initiative to establish good coping mechanisms by understanding what was happening to them in the first place. And we had this we, we had this conversation before when you in special operations training, even the most elite training in the world, American special operations. There's not a lot of outlets. There's not a lot of blocks of instruction on these processes, on mental processes, on why your mind or your body does the things it does, which I think would obviously institute some kind of coping uh, manner or mannerism to allow you to deal with these issues in the first place. To build that resiliency. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. You know, when we look at post-traumatic stress and its effects, it manifests itself in different ways. Is there something that our systems do, you know, is there a scientific process in what our minds and bodies do because of that? I mean, like the guys who are almost like in a fight all the time. So they're triggered by different reactions. Yes and no, I think is the short answer to that, which is a horrible answer. But PTSD or kind of these anxiety type spectrum disorders, you know, can be triggered by certain things, right? And so you mentioned earlier that you don't have the you know, certain cues that set you off. Whereas, you know, there's a lot of stories out where individuals come back, soldiers come back and they have a hard time driving through the neighborhood because there's trash on the street and that triggers them off and they get really nervous about IEDs. Even though when you live in, you know, middle America, there's going to be some trash floating around. Very low likelihood of there being an IED. You don't have to stop, get out and investigate it and take two hours out of your day. That is different than those individuals that potentially have, you know, that snapped anger issues and kind of dealing with those. It, it, this is, the, this is the part where the brain is very complex and we are very much in the forefront of understanding how does it work and how are these systems all working together. And that's where science and neuroscience in particular has a many advances to make. And so there's no direct answer to say this hooks to this hooks to this and we know this is the output. There's thousands of different ways for that same output to occur. And we haven't always identified exactly what are the mechanisms that happen A to B to C to equal? That's where we're going. That's where the research is going. And there are some much more kind of basic behaviors that have been identified. But things that are as complex as PTSD or anxiety disorders, those really are still very much being discovered right now. When I think about options, right, you know, solutions to potential problems, especially in the realm of PTSD, uh, I think about the nonprofits, the nonprofits that are doing stuff like the private sector. And it seems there's a big variation of what people define as what's going to help. You know, everything from nonprofits that take combat wounded veterans hunting to skydiving to nature you know, expeditions to providing service dogs for emotional support, uh, physical support. You know, with me, with Pearl even, she's a physical support certified service dog, but there is an emotional support basis for her that I find comfort in that I have a companion, I have a partner, a ranger buddy, just like I had in the military that offers this uh, support. Is there something that you've seen in you know the private industry or in the medical field that, that seems to be working? Because it, it almost seems like, I don't know if there's analytics or any, any of that stuff. Well, it's the idea that you know we wanna try and stick a, throw a thousand things to the wall and see which ones stick. And the hard part with that is it's different for every individual. So one individual can perform and have great success with one program and you bring somebody else in and it just doesn't work for them at all. And so that kind of goes back to the idea of if we knew exactly how the mechanisms work, 
and potentially drugs could be developed or there could be pharmaceutical interventions that could be developed to help relieve those types of issues or alleviate those symptoms. But under today's current technology and scientific understanding, we just don't have that yet. And so basically, if, if you have uh, mental health issues and you find something that works for you, excellent. Right, because there's so many variables. I mean, there's some, people are complex. People are complex. Yeah, you the know brain what? is extremely complex. And if, if, we, if it was an easy solution, we would have found it already, right? That's, that's the other hard part where it's, it's almost incomprehensibly complex of a system. And if, we, if it was a find it, fix it, like when you break your arm, do the surgery, the orthopedic surgeon can fix it for you. We know how that heals. Unfortunately, we're just now discovering how the brain works on a molecular and genetic level so we could try and target and build interventions for that. That's fascinating because I know and I understand that the brain and how we try to heal it is completely, it's a new unexplored ocean, right? We just, we just don't know a lot about below the surface. We're still trying to build the ships to sail on the ocean. Yeah, that's great. We've got some ships built, but we don't really know how the ocean works. We know a little bit, but we're learning more and more at a very increasingly rapid rate. But we're not to the place where we could say, okay, I know to solve this problem, I sail from here across the ocean to here and it'll work. I listen to a Tim Ferriss, you know, Tim Ferriss is a, I listen to his podcast all the time. He's got a, a lot of good guests who talk about a lot of cool stuff. And one of the guests he had on was a uh, chess champion and they were talking about depression. And, you know, one of the things they were talking about was the most intelligent people in the world suffer from depression almost more often than not because there's so I don't know if it's cognitive or analytical or what it, what's the word? What's the term for that? Uh, too smart for their own good. Too smart for their own good. But it's the idea that individuals that perform at a very high level that a lot of times have a high level of creativity also potentially have a higher probability sometimes, and this is where it gets a little wishy-washy, of having uh, symptoms of mental illness. So amazing musicians also potentially may be a little bit, you know, not normal. But that is also part of what makes them a brilliant musician. I just saw that. There's like a, I just saw on a media thing. It's talking about comedians. Mm. And there's like a documentary on comedians. It was talking about the same thing, that the most creative people in the, that were comedians during you know, the last couple of decades have all died of drug overdoses or killed themselves because yeah. depression, depression and other stuff they're facing. Yep. So what's really fascinating is there's um, this kind of, you know, I don't know if it's not a disorder, but it's this... Uh, misalignment in your brain that works, some people work for their benefit called synesthesia, right? And this is where individuals have the kind of like the, the wires are crossed, right? And so they will taste music or they will uh, hear colors, right? And so that's something where people that have it just assume it's normal, but for them, there's something that's a little bit different than everybody else. And they it's like have, Beethoven kind of stuff. Yeah, vibrations. exactly. And, and they can really you know, like when you see a C sharp and you can see a musical note, you know it's supposed to be this color of blue. And when you're tuning a piano, you can make sure you get that color blue exactly right, which is different than if I try to tune a piano. I do not have that. I'm all over the map. What is my what's my meta, you know, device tell me? This is C sharp. Okay, great. Based based on you know what this other device tell me, where those individuals have that kind of uh, enhanced connectivity that is not normal, and it could be deleterious if it leads to things like depression or anxiety disorders or things like schizophrenia. But in those senses with synesthesia individuals, sometimes it is a benefit or a way that they can do things differently than everybody else. I, I just want to taste music now. 
fill myself. Phil Collins would be like lasagna. It'd be delicious. <laughs> that sounds amazing. What's it called? Anesthesia. Synesthesia. Synesthesia. Yeah. I will never remember any of this stuff. <laughs> you know, that's fascinating stuff. And and you know, I don't want people to think that PTSD is related just to the military because people suffer inherently suffer in every facet of life. It could be. I mean, hell, you could be a stay-at-home mom and you're just dealing with stuff and it just gets to you and then causes this, you know, post-traumatic or after-traumatic series of events that affect your psychology. And one of the things that I've noticed, you know, talking about that Tim Ferriss episode is he said, you know, if the first time that he dealt with depression, talking about from uh, Tim Ferriss' perspective, he realized that getting out of his own head was the healthiest thing he could do because once we get in our heads, we manifest all these thoughts and demonize so many things and get so negative that it almost, we were talking about this yesterday, compounds itself. Feeds forward. And we were just talking about in survival where if you don't have this will will or this hope that you're going to survive and you're looking at it optimistically, then you're going to die. And so when I think about post-traumatic stress, depression, all these issues that we face, it's almost like we're predisposed or naturally set up for failure. Well, we, we have a system that's set up to exist 10,000 years ago. And the society and the environment and the culture that we're living in now, we're really not built for. We're not built to have cell phones that hyper-connect us to 6,000 people or 120,000 people. Or we, we just don't have a, even a uh, comprehension of the implications of that. We were talking about that at dinner last night. And that what we're talking about is how easy... Right. Somebody could pick up a phone and it's everything. It's almost like the reality we live in is a temporary thing because we associate it with the technology that we're immersed in. And so you could throw away a person. You could throw away a human being and be like, I'm done with you. Well, why would you think that way? Well, because I can pick up my phone and find another you in an instance. So we started to lose touch with our reality, which could be, you know, one of the many causes that we are facing so many mental health issues. Right. Potentially, it could be contributing to some of the factors that you know we're seeing now with mental health issues. On the flip side with that, I think this gives us opportunities as humans that we've never had before in the past. There's, we've never been as interconnected as we are now, which leads for the increase in collaboration. Um, you can connect people that across the world that are from different cultures, different languages, and you can interact and gain positive experiences that Previously, you'd have to literally travel around the world to do, which might take months or years to have those same interactions we can now have in an instant in our phones. Well, why, why is it, you know, I, I've noticed that the, the most satisfied, the most happiness that I've experienced in life recently, more recently, is when I turn off my phone yeah. and I walk away and I go on a hike. I even reach for my phone during that and I'm like, I have to get myself out of that habit. It feels good. It's like a liberation, right? It's almost like a reverse of now the big revelation in life is when you sit outside the technology, you get back to the basics. Yeah. All of a sudden, it's like this epic adventure. And the idea of living simply, you know, being unconnected, taking a, taking a break from being hyper-connected. Uh, again, we, we evolutionarily sat in small groups of, you know, 15, you know, you have your nuclear family of five to six individuals, sometimes more, and you have the families that you live with in your small cluster. And then you have a you know, larger cluster, maybe like a neighborhood size. But then after that, you get to the cities and we've never had this level of hyperconnectivity that we have now. And so when you revert back to that, so I, you know, I, I enjoy being outside also and, and spending time with those close group of friends 
and you know four or five guys and you're out for three or four nights together and you come back and you feel completely refreshed because you've connected with a human being on an emotional level in a very true and uh, evolutionarily valid way, which when you pick up your phone and hit like on Instagram is nothing we've ever done before. And we're just really not set up for that. It's, it's, it's insane. I call those urban sprawls full of clusters of crap. I call them cluster fucks. So it's convenient <laughs> that, that if you use the analogy of clusters, when we, when we look at the science and we look at the effects of how things transpire in our lives, I think the best thing that we could do when going into something like a survival situation or a career in special operations is prepare, right? Because when we prepare, we establish without even knowing or thinking a lot of coping mechanisms that might help us. Is there anything that we could do in that preparation phase or or with coping mechanisms to increases increase our chances of not having issues or PTSD. Again, the the idea we talked about in the previous episode of train like you fight. Treat every training exercise for what it is. Uh, you, everything from as simple as you know walking into a room, walking to a restaurant. You know, mentally, what would you do if you had to clear that room? Training as if you needed to use that experience in that moment to save your life or the lives of your loved ones, and treating treating those opportunities for what they really could be maximizing their potential will help you develop those positive good habits to build the resiliency so that if in the worst case scenario you ever did have to do that, you would have the the ability. That resiliency that's that's built. Yeah, I think uh, this this episode is leading into like a gabillion different episodes about uh, different ways, especially when it, you know, not just PTSD stuff, but performance related stuff. You know, between myself and Justin, you know, we were talking about it and we're, we're formulating the plans moving forward, you know, coming up with classes where, you know, you just don't show up and you shoot pistol and carbine and do medical training. And it's all these technical skills that are physically technical, but working on the mental floss, on the mental resiliency training, the warrior mindset training, and making yourself more capable as a warrior in your mind before you even think about doing something physical, which I think to, for me, it's like 90% of the game. It's, it's the most critical portion of being, you know, whether it's a survivalist or being just a resilient human being period. And, and it's truly important. So I look forward to, to us working on these projects in the future. Me too. It's one of the first things that goes south in stress is your decision-making ability. And so understanding how to, build it so it's better and uh, performing at a higher level is extremely important in conjunction with all of the operational hands-on tasks that you need to learn. Awesome. If you guys want to check Justin out on social media, he's got his Facebook handle, which is Tactical Neuroscience, Correct. right? Yep. And then your Instagram is also at, at Tactical Neuroscience. Awesome. We're going to work on Justin's logo because it sucks, but <laughs> there's a few things we'll polish up. Well, I look forward to these future ventures and your guys' feedback. You know, you guys can leave us feedback on Facebook at Philcraft Survival. We're always on PhilcraftSurvival.com. And you can check my social media handles at Philcraft Survival, at Soft Survivor, and at Kurt underscore Team Philcraft. Thanks for tuning in, guys. Until next time, stay alert, stay alive.